Welcome to the Blooming League of Original Podcast. G'day and welcome to an extra, extra edition of Thrash and Treasure, the torture chamber musical comedy podcast that feels like a month-long swim in Neptune's coldest lakes. And speaking of inept, I'm Aaron. And I'm joined, as unusual, by a co-host from a different show host. He's our resident Quizdom Mister, but does he have a clue about metal? Let's find out, because he's Matt, the Quizmaster. How's it going? Welcome to the show. Hey there, how's it going? Yeah. Yeah, I don't know a lot about metal, but we'll work out what I do know as we go along. Yeah, that's it. Well, you have actually been part of the show for, I think, two or three episodes now, because while we're waiting to, to get more of Spencer's reviews, because obviously Broadway's been in the off-season, I've been putting in the podcast that you have been hosting for us, Get Popped On Culture. Yes. You want to tell our listeners a little bit about that? Yeah, it's a short trivia podcast. You can listen with yourself or with your friends, challenge yourself and your friends to all things about popular culture. So some of the episodes that I've hosted so far have been boy groups, girl groups, musical groups, or horror films. So check that out. Get Popped on Culture at the Puzzle Hub. And for our musical fans, the next episode coming up is the late and great Stephen Sondheim. So how do you think the listeners are going to go with that one? Uh, well, you know, I myself have a pretty wide knowledge of the subject, so I mm-hmm. do pretty well. So I'm really excited to see how people do with that, how they do with that. There are certainly things I didn't know, so <laughs> you've done a great job with your research. Well, let's let's hope so, because the internet is a very dark place, and you find some very weird stuff that doesn't always end up being true. And what is true is so that you are a professional actor, you are a working actor, which is... Well, the the podcast was on there anyways, but I thought you were somebody that could maybe use that opportunity. I don't know if that's insulting. I apologize. It was coming from the heart. I promise. I knew exactly. I, I, I'm very aware of the number of credits you need on IMDb to be verified. So so thank you. Yeah. In, yeah. And I mean, I love um, I started my career as a Broadway performer or touring with Broadway shows in the United States and around Europe. So. I'm very excited, you know, I guess I'm sort of a bit of a musical theater nerd, so I'm very excited to be on that half of the thrash and treasure. Yeah. And as a uh, American-born Australian... I'll try not to sound like an Australian too much. No, because I don't actually sound like a typical Australian. Or a typical American. Well, in auditions, people ask me, can you do an Australian accent? I say, yeah, I'm doing one right now. I've been living here for 22 years. You are now officially the bridge between... My shitty little studio and the great white way and Hollywood, obviously, or Broadway, I should say. Yeah, no, it, well, I can see how calling it the great white way could be problematic. But it has nothing to do with that. It's to do with the bright lights, especially, you know, back in the 20s or 30s when there wasn't giant bright billboards all over Times Square, like, you know, video billboards going off 24 hours a day i hadn't even that hadn't even occurred to me until you just said it and i didn't know that it had to do with the lights i had no no idea why it was the great white way it was just you know this big wide street i guess broadway 
I went to see Cheetah Rivera in Massachusetts, in Central Mass. Uh, she was doing a bit of concerts around, and they had those searchlights, you know, outside the theater. And I was like, ooh, this must be where we're, <laughs> this must be where there's a Broadway diva, because there are searchlights going across the city of Worcester, Massachusetts. God, the last time they got searchlights for me, I drank too much. <laughs> yeah, different kind of searchlight. Anyways, guess what? What? We have our first dancing diva in the studio today. So with a step, kick, kick, feet, kick, let's touch upon the purely <laughs> sick moves this truly slick dude has fully infused in an epic career that has pounceful from stage to screen, like a cat's, as a performer, director, and choreographer, which has taught him how to succeed in this business with really flying across the Broadway stage, where he landed in Hollywood to hail Caesar and seize no dames, because there is nothing like a dame, except a multi-award-winning dance designer whose delicate and dynamic directions develop dramatic dynamite by the delightfully dreamy dancers this dialed-in dude has drafted to deliver, just like the kids of today's chosen musical, plus 13 women on the verge of a nervous breakdown. Well, there was 14, but Sunday's in the park with George, putting on the Ritz for some high infidelity with Tom Jones and the baker's wife, whilst the altar boys have a dogfight with the Bat Boys over My Fair Lady, Little Miss Sunshine, after she went missing during a godspell in the South Pacific before being found adrift in Macau like SpongeBob SquarePants. No wonder she's on the verge of that nervous breakdown. So with the clock tick, tick, ticking till the tick, tick, boom, we shout silence and a huge Aussie happy birthday as we serve up some metal cake sprinkled with just a schmigger doon to this Emmy nominated <laughs> artiste whose fireplace mantle features a Tony out of critics drama desk, two Lucille Lortels and a partridge in a pear tree ready for Emmett Otter's jug band Christmas. So if you're ready for this jelly, please help me, my girl, the king and I. Welcome to the torture chamber as we box step with full metal jazz hands to the sound of his macarenas for the arabesque of the best. So mash your potatoes and step on the right foot, baby, and twist this way, eh, for the incomparable icon, Mr. Christopher Gatelli. Yay, Shantae, you stay. Oh my gosh. Welcome to the torture chamber. <laughs> that was easily the best intro I've ever received. <laughs> <laughs> That's amazing. Jeez. Anyone ever outdoes me, you tell me, and I will sue. They absolutely will not. <laughs> Awesome. Now, do you mind if I call you Chris? Because saying Christopher, I feel like I'm telling you off. It's like we'd be calling Matt Matthew. I would just feel like a parent. I really would. Absolutely. It's exactly. That's the thing. My, my parents call me Christopher when I when they yell at me. So other than that, it's usually Chris. <laughs> Christopher? Exactly. It goes up at the end. Yeah. Whereas my parents, when they're telling me off, call me my brother's name or my nephew's name, which is even worse because he's 12. But anyways, that's it. So how are you going? I'm great. How are you guys? Perfect. Yep, pretty good. It's uh, bright and early. Now, it is nice to see you sitting down for a change because obviously you are a choreographer. You're one of Broadway's top most iconic choreographers working today. So it truly is an honor to have you on here because I haven't been able to dance in a long time without alcohol. Uh, and I know Matt is also <laughs> a uh, former dancer as well. And now he runs marathons, which just makes me tired to think about. Well, 5Ks. I can't even do five minutes without bloody falling over from tiredness. Uh, but anyways, we spoke before the Emmy Awards. Yes. Which you were nominated for your first Emmy for Schmigadoon. A shout out to Jonathan X, a friend of the show who's been on twice who actually directed that ceremony. Uh, so I hope if he got you on camera, he got your good angle. Now, did you want to trip the winner over? No. 
No. Oh, bugger. One of these days, someone is going to say yes. One of these days. You don't want to trip a choreographer, that's for sure. I could, get, I could get in real trouble. But you'd hope that if they're good enough, they would like do a somersault and then jump up and <laughs> do a, a plie or something. I don't know. I don't... Yeah, they'll just do a fancy roll out of it. Yeah. That's it. Yeah, it's, it's all on how you finish. It's not how you start. Uh, anyways, we're going to move on to metal. But this week we're going to do punk because we're going to tarten it up with some Scots. Because I chose a classic from my youth, the Exploited's Punk's Not Dead. So um, before we get into that, Chris, do you have any experience with metal, punk, heavy metal, glam, new metal, uh, thrash metal, death metal? Definitely not of this quality, for sure. I mean, yep. I think it's crossed my path, but definitely not as not as raw as these guys. Yeah, awesome. What about you, Matt? Because you're new to the show. I didn't think I did, but then I listened to this album. It's like, oh, this is, yeah, I am a child of the 80s. I grew up in the 80s. Well, born in the 70s, grew up in the 80s. So some of this would have crossed through my bedroom or through the radio growing up in central Massachusetts. So there you go. Yeah, but would you have crossed the street if you saw a punk walking towards you? Uh, yeah, I probably would have thought that was pretty cool. <laughs> yeah, awesome. Now, Chris, if you were a rock star, what would be in your stupidest, most over-the-top, craziest rider? Uh, God, that's a good question. Um, yeah, some kind of candy sounds good, kind of like a non-stop. Yes, ply, just always on hand or at hand. As we say in Australia, actually, lollies. Yes, lollies. How long did that take you to get used to, Matt, having to say lollies? Oh, yeah, no, I, I, I'm pretty I'm pretty down with the lollies now. Yeah. I mean, it's sort of thought, well, chocolate is chocolate a lolly? Because, you know, lollies would be like, I don't know, jelly candies in my imagination. Chocolate's a confection. There you go. But so is candy, I guess, on lollies. And I don't know. I have no idea. And they say sweets. Sweets a lot in London. Oh, yeah. Now I'm going to start getting hungry. Uh, but anyways, now, Matt, you reviewed the album this week. So I'll let you take the mic. Okay. Well, let me just tell you that again, like I did not know that this was actually my jam. And um, I immediately started tapping my feet and nodding my head from the very first track, Punk's Not Dead. Although the diction was not so good. Uh, it was, I had a little bit of a problem with the diction. So I had to listen a bit harder to sort of work out exactly what they were saying. But then once I figured it out, they were saying Punk's Not Dead. I was able to just sort of chill out and relax and enjoy the music and the words. What I really appreciated too was that we moved quickly on. Um, I like this, the length of the songs. I don't know, I'm a, of the Sesame Street generation, so we like short, so that was really great. And I'll tell you, the guitar was really banging on the second, well, on all of the tracks, but it really kicked in for me on the second one. I felt sort of that it became very accessible and like I had heard it before. So I'm not sure if that's going to be a positive or a negative for the band when they hear me say that. Again, that guitar on Cop Cars, track three, and the drums. Suddenly, I sort of did feel like a little bit like I was listening to a bit of a Stephen Trask sort of Hedwig and the Angry Inch sort of thing. So maybe that's why it was familiar to me, because maybe there was things borrowed on that in some of my contemporary musical theater. Um, yeah. So I love that. And then um, into track four, into Free Flight, I suddenly started thinking, well, maybe Chris could choreograph to this album like Twyla Tharp did to Billy Joel's Moving Out. No, well, it's funny. That's what I, I mean, we actually have a lot of the same reactions to it. Um, a lot of th similar thoughts. But yeah, that's what I was thinking. I mean, I, I, the energy of it was so, so incredible. And like, and I could see like choreographing it either like really going for it, like a Twyla kind of thing and really like just like letting it all loose and like people flying around and but then there's another part of me that's kind of like sometimes you play the opposite when you're creating and like i don't know so like sometimes you i, I could just also see something done 
choreographically to this where it's like a little more still and you kind of like so you're it's the surprise of like watching that person on stage like that that's going on inside them so at any second something could happen choreographically i don't know it it was really it was really really awesome it was a great album yeah i mean there's so much um movement in the guitar and in the drums you know so like speaking from a choreography point of view so yeah definitely and i mean you know there's feelings of sex and violence which are always exciting you know dramatically yeah, I mean, I really, and by by the end of the track, I was just, you know, really well into all the guitar and the drums. And then there were some awesome sort of Aerosmith type vocals in track nine. So I was like, oh, I haven't heard that yet. That was a surprise. Uh, so yeah, like really, I for someone who did not think that I was really that into punk, I was quite excited. I'm so shocked. Like, what, what, what show am I on? I honestly didn't expect either of you to like this at all this is oh wow there's no melody here there is just fuck you society really there is hard-hitting lyrics about being on the dole and about abusive police about anti-racism there's more c words in this than there was in the book of mormon i i'm Right now, I think I've broken out in a sweat because what the hell is going on? What reality am I in? This is my jam. Like, literally, if you can see my leather jacket here, I was gifted this by an older punk when I was 16 years old. Oh, wow. It used to have a lot more on it and it's all faded now. Um, And there was a patch, actually, funnily enough, an exploited patch on the back, but I replaced it with a cartoon character a long time ago, <laughs> which I have tattooed on my arm as well. So there was just lots of beer and going like this at the stage, right? And people at home can't see what I'm doing, but it's literally just like arm in the air with one finger, just pointing over and over again and like almost head banging, but not really more of a, at the top half of our body and then slamming into each other, just going yeah. boom, 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 and boom, boom, boom. And we were just 16, 17 years old in pubs listening to live bands. Now, if you think this was thrashy hearing it through speakers, go see a pub band play because it is so loud and obnoxious. I've written a, a thing about punk because I was I was expecting to have to defend this album. <laughs> Well, Chris, were you listening to the lyrics or were you listening to the music? First, I listened to the music. Like the music kind of drew me in because it was just the energy of it was unreal. But then because it was on, I was listening on Spotify, the lyrics kind of started popping up automatically. So then I was listening to the lyrics because I that was the thing, too, because of their accent, plus the sound of it all. I couldn't understand the lyrics at first. Yeah. And neither did Spotify. Yeah. But then once I started reading the lyrics, it was, I was like, wow. I mean, and it's all still timely, surprisingly enough, but, um, and agreed, like just in terms of length, like stuck to one strong idea and, and kind of really made it really made that point and drove it home. It was really good. Although it's funny, sex and violence, which doesn't have too many lyrics goes for five minutes. Um, but that rings of ACDC's I've got big balls, which we, we did that album with Orfe and I had never heard that song. But I knew this song, I knew Sex and Violence, so I wonder where the influence came from. Now, yeah, the diction, some of the lyrics on Spotify were literally just question marks or (laughs) incomprehensible in parentheses. So I don't think Spotify really understood as well, but this is what I talk about of punk all the time. There's not the disco influence here, but there's the cheekiness, for one thing, the political drives is 
three lines to Dolky, right? Literally three lines and it's nearly two minutes long. Three lines. And that, like take that, who run the world, girls. Like seriously, that's how you write a song that has very, very few lyrics but still packs a, a huge punch. Now I'll still read my defense because what? What's going on? I just feel the need to defend them. Exploited are icons. They've been around since the 70s. Punk, old school thrash punk like this isn't meant to be melodic. It's in your face is obnoxious. Otherwise, we'd wear plain clothes. It's a fuck you to society that neglects its youth whilst putting too much blame on them. It's a bite back. It's not melodic. It's anger. It's political, social, uh, sexual, comedic. It's acidic. They are the social justice warriors fuck twitter but relatable to anybody who's been kicked down punk is only uninviting when all you hear is noise because that blind deaf ignorance is what punk is fighting against the exploited by name alone rins of that and in their music in what is voice and lyrics you hear that anger that bitterness and it's better than 99% of these internet activists with overstocked Twitter accounts. Punk's not dead. Society's soul is. That was my defense. I practiced that like for the past three or four days and I didn't even need to do it. I'm Okay, let's go back. Oh, I, it was completely inaccessible. I, I, I couldn't understand anything. Uh, I didn't like it. Yeah. <laughs> wow. <laughs> I'm flawed. That... You guys at home... I'm shooketh. I really am. I I did been rammed into me that it's just noise. I'm so glad you heard that it's not. It was fun. I don't know how I survived, but it was fun. I know how I survived because leather is tough, even if I'm not. But I did get bashed a couple of times, so that wasn't fun. Uh, this is oi punk as well. This is it's really the difference between new school and old school punk. But this is considered oi, and one of the big audience of is skinheads and I wanted to bring this up because there is a difference between skinheads and what you would call boneheads which are the Nazis the racists skinheads are anti-fascist they're anti-racist they are anarchists yes but they don't believe in anarchy as a form of living let's live in dystopia this is about creating a utopia it's about tearing down that man that is oppressive and all that jazz you know and society when you see someone with a shaved head i shave my head all the time i do it out of laziness because it could be bothered people see skinheads and immediately think that's a Nazi and that's not the case because this is a culture that has stemmed from the 60s that came from youths in the UK and has absolutely nothing to do with the disgusting boneheads, the fucking assholes. I, I could say worse words than that, but the Orion's gash, which are the gay Orion skinheads, they are full on like you would not believe. And my experience as a teenager we would have actual Nazis come into the pubs. So us younger mm. kids, we would get ushered out the back door, you know, because they would come in about 11 o'clock once the, the gigs had started dying down. And yeah, we would get the hell out of there. We were looked after by the older punks really so much because, you know, we were the younger generation coming up and, you know, but then a lot of us had to get jobs and shave our mohawks. I'm again, I'm flawed. I had so much prepared to defend this. I didn't need to. Did we give it a score? Or w would you give it a score? Say like se seven, seven, eight. Yeah. Cool. What about you, Matt? Yeah, I'm definitely giving it an eight. I mean, yeah. I'd go back for more. Wow. Goodness. Well, they do have more albums. Um, um, it looks like punk definitely isn't dead then. And we're going to go to an ad break. 
G'day listeners, Aaron here. We thought we'd better send a spy to Broadway to check out the shows for us. So here for today's review is our Broadway spy, Spencer. Up next, we have Mike Birbiglia's The Old Man at the Pool at the Vivian Beaumont Theatre at Lincoln Center. I have not laughed this hard in a very long time. Mike Birbiglia writes a solo show with highs and lows and comedy and seriousness in a way that I've never seen before. The design for the show is very subtle, but very intentional. You have a set by Beowulf Borat and lighting design by Aaron Kopp, both of which were standouts. Now, the set is made to look like a YMCA pool that's like curved, and it's also used as a screen for the projections by Hannah S. Kim, which were, again, very subtle but poignant. Mike Birbiglia himself, you know, he he puts himself out on that stage. It is so incredibly funny and well-written, and there's not a single moment when you're not enjoying yourself. The show closes December 30th, and it is for everyone. It is for tourists, purists, everyone, because we all need a laugh, and that's what the show will give you. All right, you're listening to Thrush and Treasure. I'm Aaron, that's Quizmaster Matt, and we are joined by choreographer extraordinaire Chris Gatelli. And I am still, after this ad break, I am shook as I, I went out, I screamed into the open space, and I poured a bucket of cold water over me, but I still cannot believe that that album went. Um, so we're going to go from the exploited now to the exploited, and we're going to do Newsies. <laughs> yeah, so this way I thought we would do Newsies because being born in 85, you would have thought, you know, I'm sitting here in a Beauty and the Beast t-shirt. I have an Aladdin neck pillow right next to me. I have my Captain America pillowcase behind. Clearly, I'm a bit of an Alan Menken fanboy. Uh-huh. I had not, sorry, I just had never seen this. I never knew it existed until Rent, the days of Napster, when I was trying to get the Rent albums from like Hungary or Sweden, like the international Rent albums. And so I'd be typing in Santa Fe. And I'd see a thing called Newsies, and I never knew what it was. That's amazing. So that's why I thought we would do it this week. And Matt didn't know it as well. No, I didn't. Um, I don't really know why. <laughs> it was just, um, I was in New York, you know, in the 90s into the 2000s. And then, I don't know, I guess I was maybe raising children or something during the time, which doesn't make any sense because, you know, I should not be watching Newsies. But we were more, yeah, in a Finding Nemo sort of place, I guess. Hocus Pocus I grew up with, Nightmare Before Christmas I grew up with, in terms of Disney musicals that, I don't know, Christian Bale was in it, but I, no, Mr. Menken, you know, I love your work so much, I would not have invited you on this show if I didn't, but I did watch The Pro Shot, which is on Disney+, Plus. so I've written a review, are we prepared? I'm prepared. Yep, all right. When we first decided to open the Newsies, I knew this wouldn't be a black and white experience. Not like other Disney musicals from that era, Newsies is fresh ink to me, so I pressed play on the Spotify, expecting that iconic Menken flavour of music, but was instead treated to something more air-punchy than the music I've grown up with. Here, the rhythmic, bluesy, soulful numbers are replaced with lingering triumph, boiling away under a hopeful, bright-eyed naivete that seeps from the titular Newsies. 
but it begs the question, how did this now legendary movie turn Tony award-winning musical get past me all these years? Lack of Disney Channel aside, I lived at the video shop. I saw every movie and musical I could. I saw The Little Mermaid as a four-year-old, soon-to-be gay kid at the cinema. Yet Newsies is completely that. And I'm conflicted. In part, given my distaste for children, sorry, scaffolding, projections, and, well, children. But here is this timely, grown-up tale of unions, child labour, exploitation, and poverty being told through the eyes of children. No worse, 28-year-olds playing children, but that would make it oldsies. <laughs> Yet with that gratifyingly lingering triumph, that earnest, bright-eyed youthfulness shining through Jedi Master Menken's music that still has an underlying darkness to it all, is no doubt what makes these newsies rock stars to younger fans as we, even curmudgeonly old me, find ourselves punching the air and cheering on those little brats, sorry, pioneers. And whilst the Broadway staging used scaffolding, it also kind of wasn't. It invoked the industrial look of the times of a New York City on the rise, adding to the vibe set by the music. So therefore, it's not scaffolding and it's not lazy, even if it is drab. But those were the times and the prospects of many newsies. Therein highlighting that tinge of darkness to Mencken's work, which feels slightly more intricate than the lyrics, which are fittingly accessible to its target audience, which apparently I never got an invite to. <laughs> Three and a half stars out of five, because I'd like to see it live. Um, yeah, so I quite really enjoyed this. I More than I was expecting, but I can be curmudgeonly, especially when it comes to children singing and shouting and running around. Um, but obviously these are sort of older actors playing them your choreography is insane chris oh my godfathers <laughs> goodness me I, I have no idea how did how many ankles were sprained running around on that those sets because that was i'll be honest none we had a pretty a pretty uh pretty healthy company let's put it that way no real bad injuries it was a great collaboration with me and the cast in terms of like what they could do live and eight shows a week and yep. keep their bodies fit and everything so so we made sure to, to kind of take care of them in that way too so yeah we luckily we knock on wood there were no real problems no one turned into a pretzel by the end of each night <laughs> Well, that may have happened, but that's just the dancer's life in general. <laughs> Lots of bad, Bill. Yes. That's it. Um, yeah, no, I really, I just don't know how this got by me. I don't. It's, I loved Bugsy Malone. Mm -hmm. that, that was one that, but they're like shooting each other in that. <laughs> so anyone who knows me knows I love action films and horror films and stuff like that. Not like children shooting each other, but it's like they're splurge guns. They're not, okay, that sounds a bit adult, but they are, Cream pies. Again, we're going into the wrong territory there. Oh my god, fathers. Um, if you haven't seen Bugsy Malone, just go watch it. You'll know what I'm talking about. It's a gangster movie. Jody Foster. Yeah. Well, I think the thing I was most surprised about with Newsy was that a burlesque house was in a Disney musical. But even this story is not a kid's story. This this is not a bedtime story you're reading to your kids. And yet kids have loved it for so long. Yeah. Did you get that vibe from the audiences, Chris, well, especially at Paper Mill when it first opened? I, I Absolutely. I think there's something about the show that kind of sneaks up on you and that, like, it's entertaining and the, and the music and everything is great. But at the end of the day, like, the story itself is really moving and I, I, I find really inspiring. Even today, if it were out now, just, you know, we need it. It's really inspiring to see and to think that it's a, it's a true story. These young kids 
stood up for themselves that way against quote unquote the man you know it's something that we all i think especially in these times take for granted that you do have a, a vote and you do have a say and it's important to keep that in the front of your mind and not the back yeah and it's not all about twitter i love how pulitzer was like oh you know we're gonna raise the price but you know we'll just make them sell more more papers and that's going to teach them a lesson but it wasn't like a spiteful sort of thing you know he was like oh i'm actually doing something good for them a lot of villains convince themselves that they're doing the right thing <laughs> Look at Thanos and how many people walked away from Avengers Infinity War going, oh, Thanos was right. People thought bloody Hitler was right too, for crying out loud. <laughs> Goodness oh, gracious God. me. That's what the villain does is convinces you that they're right, that they're doing the right thing. Otherwise, they become a moustache twirler. Like, ooh, I'm doing the evil deed. But I think in the narrative, like, you know, it's not quite clear at the very beginning who the villain is going to be. You know what I mean? And so... He I got, yeah, I found that to be very interesting. Villain in quotation marks, the, the antagonist, more to the point, because he's not so much a villain, I guess. I don't know. Don't know much about the man. Pulitzer, hardly know her. Um, <laughs> I'm saying. Every time I would watch it or listen to it and they'd say Pulitzer, I'd be like, I hardly know her. And then I'd be like, Noah, I hardly know him. He built the ark. Oh, yeah, he did too. I, so, okay, I wanted to ask about the audiences because I think this was one of the shows sort of in the past. I've got a question later about sort of the past decade or so of Broadway and musicals in general. Was this really one of the earlier shows of this century that has had screaming audiences all the way through it? Because I noticed they were quite vocal in that pro shot. They were, and they were nightly. You know, I think, like you said, how, how did I miss it back then? It's kind of... I think it, it came and went pretty quick and I guess technically was considered a flop. Yeah, it was, wasn't it? But I was around for it and I, I definitely loved it, especially being a male dancer and seeing all those guys dancing like that. Like it, yeah. this was before, obviously before the days of YouTube and stuff. So I didn't even know that there were that many men who danced in my little hometown, you know? So I, I personally found it inspiring, but I think it just kind of came and went. And I think if you were one of the, like the well, fansies, if you were one of the fansies of the movie, you know, you knew about this this hidden gem, but I also I, I find that seeing it live on stage was part of its appeal because the movie is, fan, is is fantastic, but it's like to see it live and to see those performers do that live yeah. is something that's really thrilling because you know you can edit things and you can take the best shots of things, but when you're watching that kind of talent live every night do that like in combination with all of the moving parts of the story and all the score and everything. It's just, it was another, uh, it just made it really thrilling to see that, you know, that's happening right in front of you. Yeah. I, I have a little bit of a problem on this show with vocal audiences. Cause I'm trying to listen to what's going on on the stage and all I can hear is people screaming next to me. Cause they've seen it 10 times already. <laughs> um, but that's me being a bitch. So I'll own that. Wicked, massively popular, but doesn't really have people screaming all the way through it. They're quite quiet, which I appreciate. Now, Matt, how did you go with this? I'm trying to find a pen that's not a clicky pen because I'm banned from clicky pens on the show because all I do is sit here and click them. Yeah, well, I mean, again, Chris, like, I mean, the energy of the dance ensemble is just incredible. Like, the dance is such an incredible part of the 
performance. And I, but, you know, but we talk about like the audience response. I mean, how could you not at the end of those first numbers with all the dancing and the athleticism, the, just the excitement of the athleticism, not want to be a part of it. And I think that's where those cheers come from. I agree. I, I, again, I th- you're just, you end up, you know, I said this, it, it kind of, it's an interesting thing that there was like this kind of like parallel story going on at the same time that you're watching a story about these young kids who are trying to like, you know, fight and pave a way for them to like, just have a fair seat at the table. And at the same time, when you're like, let's just say on Broadway, you're watching these young boys, you know, who had like, it was most of their Broadway debut, like you're watching them kind of do the same thing in real time. Like they're growing up in front of you, like making the, making a seat at the table for themselves in this community. So it was this really beautiful kind of like parallel thing happening in real time. And, um, and that's why I think the, the, the cheers were from that, from their kind of incredible performances. I, you know, they they were, well, we always had, we've always gotten lucky with the talent, but like, you know, every newsy that's come through, you know, it's, they're, they're very unique and, and special. And there's certainly memorable people from that original cast, you know, Jeremy Jordan and Andrew Keenan Bolger. And, you know, it's just, and again, like, you know, it's funny you said um, Annie earlier, Aaron, um, you know, because that does have that sort of, that sort of same sort of fight and spirit as Annie. And so maybe that's something that the audience is responding to, too, because it's something that's familiar from another generation. Yeah, I actually have a theory about Annie that Oliver Warbucks is actually Oliver Twist. And he grew up and then he helped an orphan just like he was when he was. Ah, that's a nice one. Uh-huh. It's, it's, not, it's not a really sweet tale. Well, there's that rap battle between Anne and the Newsies at one of the Easter bonnets. Oh, wow. A few years back. Yeah. Now, I don't know if it's been to Australia yet. I don't, it hasn't been professionally, that's for certain. We wish. I love Australia. Yes, we'll bring it. Now, was there Foley put into that pro shot? That's what I would like to know because the scene where. I, I can't remember the character's name with the the crutches. A- Andrew Crutchy and Bolger's character, uh, Crutchy. Yeah, when he gets whacked with the crutches, that was Foley. There was no way in hell that that sound that I heard when he was getting hit that was definitely Foley, which I thought was funny and cute because you don't usually see that in theater. But unless there was you know someone tapping themselves or something like that, but it really did sound like Foley. It might have been. Yeah, because the way we shot it, we actually we did a week of isolated shots with them to make sure that we had everything like we were able to get the cameras on stage and around them which was awesome and then we did the one live performance where we captured the actual house so that was re- it was a it was a really cool process yeah i'm not criticizing i just i noticed it that's all as the choreographer did you have much say in like the camera direction the dance direction of that pro shot there were some moments that i gave um my opinions of just like this would be great to get from here or this i'd really love to get this from the front because of the picture or whatever but i have to say they covered so much of it and covered so much of it well i think they did a great job with it in terms of just experiencing it like it made you feel like you're in the theater watching it but yet at the same time really brought you into it so yeah it was better than i thought it was going to be to be honest they did great yeah i think the only issue i really had is with projections i want to see beautiful paintings not projections people um but that's me (laughs) that's my beef with theater and i know it saves money and all that jazz, I get it. I totally get it. But I just, I don't think lights pop like a painting does. But 
I don't know. That's just me. Um, otherwise, like the set, I thought was actually really effective. And I've ranted a lot on this show about scaffolding because it's typically just stomp, stomp, stomp. It's scaffolding for the sake of being cheap and edgy. But that's not what was happening here. And it was very intricate. There was moving parts. The sets were moving around. I swear to God, someone had to have gotten crushed or their foot twisted or something, but apparently not. So that's a that's a miracle, in my opinion, because it was quite full on, that set. Uh, during technical rehearsals, how, how tired did you get working with that set? To be honest, it wasn't as bad because we did, we did a lot of it without the cast and we did a lot of it we went in with a lot of the ideas going in. So as we were rehearsing it, we, we had a pretty good idea and made, again, made sure everything was super safe. Cause man, once those, I mean, those things are huge, those towers. So once they were on the move, it's like, <laughs> they, they it, it took a lot to stop them. So it was, it, it, it was a kind of, yeah, planned pretty much well in advance. Are those in your show Bible, um, you know, as for your dance captains, like the, are the sets a different dance, another dancer in the, in sort of the show Bible? Oh, totally. I mean, they're, it's part of the, yeah, definitely how they move and which direction. And, and, and that's why, because like you were mentioning about the projections, like, cause sometimes they'd stay open. Sometimes certain boxes would be closed off. So there's a lot of that because we'd have to hide certain performers behind the, the panel. So it was a lot of math, but which actually I, I love to be honest. So it was a lot of math figuring all that out kind of like a rubik's cube but um but it was really it was really fun at the same time so but i was gonna say i i, I think they, they're they're saving it for hopefully for a run in australia i have to put that on a big ship i tell you that because <laughs> every time i say scaffolding the first thing it's my eye twitches because i've just had some bad experiences with it but again as i say it wasn't scaffolding it was the industrial look of a building being built it worked it's like those that old picture of the guys sitting on the um you know yes. on the beam yes. with the hats on. Oh yeah, the yes. beam. You know, having their sandwich or whatever. Yes, they used for the Friends promo shoot. It's totally random fact from like 1995. Yeah, I would love to see it live. I would like to be honest. I would like to see a different setting because I, whilst I loved what I saw, now I've seen that. Mm -hmm. That's that's the one problem with pro shots is that as much as I love to get to see what they're seeing on Broadway, it's like and it, it comes to Australia and it's two hundred dollars a ticket. And I'm like, well, I have kind of. I've already seen it 20 times so i don't typically go and see it yep this is true yeah so i, I would like a, an aesthetic change if anything but that's that that's just me being picky really um but i am here to be critical so yeah no i i gave it three and a half stars as an album but i think live it would definitely be a four because as i say your choreography the performers and the story itself the feeling you get from it the the feeling of a spring in your step afterwards that you can achieve anything which i, I know we get that in really every disney film don't we but yeah no i am um, i would say this definitely so please disney you're bringing beauty and the beast back bring us newsies actually and also hunchback of notre dame mm -hmm. that it make me very happy and aida and oh and aida we jesus christ we miss out on everything we didn't get tarzan we haven't had the little mermaid professionally either so anyways it looks like the newsies have been read to filth so we're gonna seize an ad break g'day listeners aaron here while you're topping up your coffees, did you know that you can support our show and go on a fantastically scary adventure at the same time? Go to www.thetonistontales.com 
forward slash bookstore to grab your copy of The Toniston Tales, a darkly funny Aussie trilogy about a young boy who rescues injured animals in his spare time, and the roller coaster ride he's taken on by a literal fish out of water. Written by me, the village idiot of Thrash and Treasure, you'll come to love Toniston Turnbull and the dozens of wacky characters that he meets along the way. And here is a sneak peek. After barely three hours of light sleep, Toniston Turnbull slowly opens his eyes, his body feeling heavier than it ever has before. Not from extra weight, from tiredness and stress. Polly sighs in the shadows behind him, the flame of the nearest barbed wire tiki torch tower having died down, but not out, while Toniston napped. Are you awake? Toniston whispers. Oh, how can I sleep in this place? Polly moans, turning onto her side and facing Toniston, who stays on his back, imagining obscure animal-esque shapes in the rusted tin roof above them, shadows faintly formed by the nearest dying torches. We need to work out a way to get out of here, Toniston states the obvious. He whispers, despite the fact the nearest shacks to their own are several metres away, and the occupants presumably asleep, as most prisoners seem to be. How? There's no fence to squeeze through, or even climb, Polly replies, sitting up in bed and then stretching out her sore arms. The hairs stand on end from the slight chill in the air. I don't know, but I think the whole fighting thing is a distraction. You mean, to distract the other prisoners when new ones arrive? No, I, I think that was just bad timing. Didn't you notice? Toniston goes on to explain his theory. That fight happened, everybody gathered around, I didn't see one person who wasn't watching, and then when I vomited, the only gate in this place closed shut. What are you trying to say? I think something happened when everyone's back was turned. Like what? whispers Polly, her voice breaking up in fear. I don't know. That's what we've got to find out. Toniston's brain starts working overtime, but it's strange that nobody seems to want to leave. They seem almost happy. Definitely content. So, when's the next one of those stupid beatdowns? Toniston can't help but think Polly looks tough, almost evil in the shadows as she asks, I don't know, Toniston begins, but both teenagers are distracted by a crumbling noise in the distance. Hopping out of bed, Toniston joins Polly on her own, equally uncomfortable one. Spotting a large, white package hovering close to the cave ceiling, behind it a shadowy figure. The package is lowered down, causing the teenagers themselves to lower as well, hoping not to be spotted by whom, or what, may be operating this obscure crane. Over a long, slow descent, the package is dropped to the ground. Polly keeps her eyes on it, but Toniston looks up immediately, spotting a large black shadow scurry away to God only knows where. Come, he whispers, as he quietly hops off her bed, slipping into his docks with bare feet. Polly follows his lead. Careful to keep watch on all directions, the teenagers swiftly sneak over to the white package, their hearts beating an almost tribal jam in perfect harmony and stopping in their tracks as the sudden realisation of what lies before them sinks in. A woman, seemingly in her early twenties, wrapped up in bandages from the neck down. No, not bandages. Is that spiderweb? Polly asks, completely mortified at the prospect. Grab your copy of The Toniston Tales from thetonistontales.com forward slash bookstore today. Hooroo!
Alrighty, you're listening to Thrash and Treasure. I'm Aaron, that's Matt, and we are joined by the incredible dancing man, Chris Gatelli. In terms of choreographers, is that a competitive field as much as acting is? Because there's like one, maybe two choreographers to 20 cast members, so the jobs are a lot less. Does it get competitive? Uh, if it is, it doesn't feel that way. I think because theatre is a lot less accessible than like just popping on something on TV. So I think especially in the theatre, you know, we're all just kind of rooting for each other to do well, just so that we, we keep making more of it and we get more opportunities and give people opportunities. So yeah. Artists need to support artists more, I think, because nowadays our enemy is, or well, not our enemy, but our competition isn't each other. Our competition is the real housewives and Kardashians and people like that, people without talent. Oh, I agree. I'm waiting for this phase to be over. I think it doesn't. Yeah. <laughs> keeps not being over i keep saying like people actually are are trained to do this they're trained to you know put on shows and you know act and sing and dance and perform and it's the reality thing i'm pretty good with i'm pretty pretty filled up filled up and and look i look at australian tv and it's all reality and it's a sad fact that now Two actors going to audition aren't competing against each other. Two actors are going to audition. Thankful that job exists to begin with. Agree. Mm. And that's a really sad state to be in. Agree. I'm so vocal in support of artists. I really am because I am one myself and the opportunities just aren't there. Now, Schmigadoon season two is coming. Is it true this season will be subtitled Oh Schmigkada? And will there be lots of naked boys schmigging? <laughs> I mean, that, that's one way it could have gone, but it didn't go that way. What? The rumors are false, and I did not at all start them. You could make a suggestion. Uh, I don't, it's too late to go back. Although, you know, could always edit something in. No, it's, you're hitting the right time period, but we didn't, we didn't, I can't, I don't want to give spoiler, but I guess in some, I guess in some way it, uh, yeah, we, we hit O'Calcutta, I guess. Yeah. <laughs> Interesting. <laughs> How is it schmear? Schmippen? I, that could all possibly be in there. It's the 60s and 70s, early 80s. I still haven't seen the last two episodes or three episodes because when I realized that this was about them falling in love, I'm single, so I'm like, oh, and I can't watch romance because it just makes me sad. (laughs) Uh, But anyways, what makes you unwittingly give a standing ovation? So what makes you just naturally jump out of your seat Oh, gosh, that's a good question. I, I think I'm one of those people that I feel the standing ovation is a little too common. I mean, I get it, but I, I usually stand if it's someone like out of respect, you know, like if someone's been at their craft a while and they're on stage and they, they come with this breath of work and it's kind of something to kind of acknowledge that they're still a part of the community or, or whatnot. But I feel like the standing ovation is, is, uh, has become a bit normalized in a way. It's different in London when I worked there. It's like the audiences in London, they'll stand if it's like, if it's, they really deserve it. People on teams over there are like, wow, they really like this one because they're, they're standing, which is so odd because coming from the States, it just happens all the time. Yeah. So I will, if it's, I guess, yeah, like that, like if it's really, really deserved. Yeah, which has been sort of very much my running narrative on this show. Sit the hell down, people, (laughs) unless you are just so compelled to get up. And I've said it many episodes that we're in this phase of, yay, we're happy, we're out of the house. I get it, you're excited, you're going to give standing ovations, but 
and I saw the way everybody stood up and it felt really regimented. It didn't feel excited. It felt like, oh, this is the part where we stand up and we clap very politely standing (laughs) up and looking like a fool giving a standing ovation to Mamma Mia because they told me to on the stage. Sorry, Matt, I know you're offended by that. How could you? (laughs) We were talking about that before, and and Matt said that at the end of the show, they tell you to stand up, and I'm like, no. Well, I did. When I was in, I was like, get up, stand, dance along with us. Oh, yeah, no, see, no, that's a daggy parent thing. No, I'm... There was a time in in New York where um where especially when the ticket prices started going up where I think people were standing up just so that they could be like yeah look at me I paid the price for these tickets <laughs> I got my money's worth yeah I I totally get that but no you hear about these mid you know mid show standing ovations I mean I I think maybe Casey Donovan might have got one of those in nine to five in um in Australia. Um, just because she was, it was such a powerhouse for her performance. I mean, you do hear about these every once in a while. Because she deserves every one she gets. That's <laughs> why she is a powerhouse. I am so team Casey Donovan. It's not funny. And it was nearly 20 years ago that she won Australian Idol. Anyways, I'm going to move on. Speaking of teen idols, which posters were on your wall as a kid? Oh, my God. I was I was so into Star Wars when I was young. Oh, nerd. Yeah, I was total nerd, uh, total nerd. Yeah, Star Wars. And I was actually a huge comic book fan when I was young. So I went to comic conventions and had artists, you know, drawing superheroes and stuff like that. So that's kind of what was on my walls when I was young. Cool. Wow. Do you Did you ever get to work with any of the actors from Star Wars in any sort of capacity as a Broadway choreographer? I mean, was Carrie Fisher doing anything with you? or I actually did something. I did a project with Carrie yeah. Oh wow. I literally lost my mind. <laughs> yeah. I, I was beside myself. I think I might have had Carrie Fisher on my wall. Probably the Carrie Fisher, you know, with the two buns from, you know, uh-huh. <laughs> in the white in the long white dress. But but then, of course, yeah. you know, Carrie Fisher in, in Jabba the Hutt's um, you know, area as well. In the bikini. So yeah. yeah, I was a bit of a Star Star Wars fan too. That is totally sexist. Anyways, no, no, was... <laughs> I'm not on that. She was a she was a strong, empowered woman. This is why we like that character. She was a captain or a general, wasn't she? Yeah, General Organa. Uh anyways, what is your personal industry pet peeve? Not not a social justice thing, not not something we hear about. What's your personal industry pet peeve? Uh-oh. Um, I think it's the amount of time spent on Instagram and stuff like that. I don't know, growing up in an era where we didn't have all this and like all you did was go to class, you know, to like hone in your craft. And I, I, I see this generation like spend so much time videotaping themselves and doing these photo shoots. I, you know, so I usually, when I do these master classes and stuff, I usually say like, you know, all the money, all the time that you took finding that photographer and getting that outfit and going to the park and climbing that tree and getting shots done in the tree. <laughs> you know, it's like that that time could have been spent getting better at your art so that when you come in for us to audition, like you're prepared. Mm-hmm. So that's, that's kind of my, you know, my biggest pet peeve. And <laughs> Amen. I never knew it was so easy to get an acting job than to film yourself doing a little comedy sketch and putting it on Twitter and getting a couple of thousand viewers and saying, hey, I'm an actor, give me a job. Like, really? Is that where the industry has gotten to now that people just need to take a few photos or videos, post it online, say, I'm a thing? It goes back to our reality TV conversation. Yeah. I think it's like that's kind of being, that's why I think that whole that whole idea of it gets normalized like someone does a tiktok video and all of a sudden it's like you're like whoa yeah so 
I, I see it all the time. I I saw someone just before said I oh, any stage manager gigs. I'm like, is it really that easy to just tweet out that you want a job? Because please, people, give me a freaking job. You hear the I introductions <laughs> I write. Exactly. Goodness me, why? Drag race. Why the fuck have you not emailed me and said, Aaron, <laughs> you've got a little bit of talent here, kid? Because it's not that easy as to just post yourself online and get a gig like that. Uh, I was about to say, um, Andy Warhol said that every, in the future, everybody will have their 15 minutes of fame. Now we can quote him on that, or we can blame him for putting the idea in our heads. And that's why we're in the mess we're in now. Because everyone thought, oh, well, Andy Warhol said it. It must come true. Well, I also should get a million dollars. No, it's not happening, is it? Anyways. Do people pull out their cell phones in rehearsal rooms? like that you run oh that's another one it depends on depends on the the level of like if like for example i just did a, a workshop of a new project and they do and for that i go okay it's not it, they're not getting paid as much they're not in it you know doing a run but i have been known to put shoe holders on the doors of rehearsals and people put their cell phones in before they come into rehearsal for sure. Good. You're there to work. You're there to be a team. You're not there to promote yourself. That's the problem. It's, it's gotten down to the promotion of self, not the arts. You know, and I, well, that's what I see it anyways. But as we've established, I am a curmudgeon and a bitch. So I will obviously <laughs> have opinions like this. All right. Anyways, we'll move on. What has been your worst injury from dancing? Oh, gosh. I um I was actually when I per- was performing in Cats I landed out of a jump wrong and uh, hurt my lower back my discs uh, I herniated two of my discs I was out for a bit yeah it was did not feel good <laughs> for sure but um yeah but with enough did you finish the show no I I could I and I never did that there was a term called early release or ER from your show and I was like I can't imagine ever getting through a show that you'd have to like leave midway unless you're really really sick or something and then a few months later totally happened and i was like oh i get it now i get why <laughs> you know it that's like a thing and yeah i definitely had to had to leave were you out for a long time it was like a couple months wow. yeah i did a good physical physical therapy and do all of that yeah any damage to the spine is just it's awful all right sorry to damper the situation have you been asked that before in an interview no actually Mm-mm. yes all right because i don't <laughs> like to ask questions that other people have asked and i was worried that that you, you may have been asked that Matt, I know you have a question that you wanted to ask. I, I do. It sort of goes back to, you know, what we were talking about with, you know, pulling out your cell phone in the middle of the rehearsal room. Um, like back in the day when I was dancing, you know, back in, back when I was young, back in the 1990s in New York, we would learn all of our choreography from the choreographers or from the dancers that had learned it from the original choreographer. And so, I mean, Chris, with your work, I mean, it, looking specifically at Newsies, like there is a pro shot sort of version of Newsies. Do you find that people borrow your choreography without permission? And where do you draw the line on, um, you know, on seeing somebody's choreography and then recreating it? That's a, it's, that's such a great question. And um, it, it's, well, I'm actually on the, I'm one of the co-chairs of the choreographer board um, in our union. And we're dealing with that. We, it's like a daily, an ongoing daily discussion, and it, which actually gets harder the more platforms are invented. Like we just had a big conversation about TikTok, about like people then like would post something from like, I, since we're talking about like Newsies, for example, and they do it, but they don't give the choreographer credit, the original choreographer. So it's like, we're trying to figure out ways of, 
not that we don't want people to do it because that's what's so great is like I love I mean personally at least my my feeling is like I love that people do it and they like they would want to do it I think that's it's it's a lovely compliment um but it's just the degree at which kind of like you're credited or not credited and when and where and all that stuff it's a it's a it's a constant conversation but I've definitely like even when I've had to choreograph certain things like when I did the king and I um uh there was with the Jerome Robbins estate um that you there were certain shows of his that you have to go through his lawyers to get permission to do so like king and I was one of them where we had to get permission to do his choreography but we did it at Lincoln Center and the stage was a thrust and not proscenium so it had to change a bit because of just mm -hmm. the nature of the dynamics of the theater so we had to get a special kind of agreement with them. So it was like partly his choreography and partly mine because I had to kind of take what he did and reshape it and choreograph other moments to like look like it was all in the same kind of style and vocabulary, which was, I, I found a, a really great challenge and and was exciting just to kind of share that with him. But um, yeah, it's it's uh, it's kind of all over the map right now in terms of in terms of that it's a, it's interesting it's an ongoing conversation for sure I, I think it boils down to another thing i keep bringing up fan ownership you um mm. i was what was i looking at i was on spotify the other day and i i'd seen an album that was the i think it was the jurassic park score completely re recorded by somebody else who's trying to make themselves famous we see it on YouTube all the time. We see writers will rewrite someone else's story. Like someone really loves Harry Potter. So they'll rewrite the first book in their voice. It's not okay. It's not okay to take someone's image, put it on a t-shirt and sell it for $40 on your Etsy store. You don't own the art you love. You don't own the artists you love. And I think that's where it boils down to is that fans feel like, cause it's such a big part of their life and it, it gives them validation and it makes them, gives them comfort and, and has gotten them through the hard times that they then allowed to do what they want with it. And it's like I said to Matt the other day, why do we know the names of people who play video games, but we don't know the names of the artists who designed them or wrote them? or even acting in them mm. half the time because fans step up and they're like, well, I play video games 24 hours a day and now give me money. I sort of feel like the internet has ruined why I wanted to get into the industry in the first place, to be honest. It's fans have taken all this stuff and look at what happened with JK Rowling. Suddenly fans were burning their books because the thing that they loved so much had let them down. That's that's the opposite side of this, of the ownership thing, that something they've invested so much in will let them down so much that they have to erase it out of their lives. It comes in the same when, when you have, you know, these fans go to a $200 Broadway musical and they're sitting there screaming all the way through it and singing along because they own it. Me sitting yeah, next the to them. along, that, that happens. That's, ooh, <laughs> or the filming it as well. And people want to turn around and blame Lilius White for what happened. The person who it happened to said that the enemy is ableism. As a disabled person, no, it's not. 
the enemy here is people who go to a theater and sit there and film because Lilius White wasn't looking at that person. And the first thing in her head was, oh, this person must be hearing impaired because what we so commonly see are people sitting there with their phones filming it. So that is the enemy because that was the first thing they saw. It's like I said before, when you see a skinhead, the first thing people will immediately think is a Nazi racist because that's what we're used to. They take over and I did not pay $200 to hear you sing, quite frankly, but it, it leads into my next question because in the past decade or so, we have seen a spike in theatre as binge viewing. You know, a show will come out and it'll be on for maybe three months or something or two months off Broadway or whatever. And people will go see it in the first week or whatever. And they love it so much and they'll buy 20 tickets and they keep going back. Movies are set, TV shows are set, but live theatre is vulnerable. Not every performance will be the same. Would you agree that, whilst I'm not saying it's necessarily a bad thing, but w- would you say that theatre? wasn't really designed for this type of binge viewing because what's happening is someone will go see, say, I don't know, Wicked 10 times in a year. And every time they do, they'll get on stage or, well, she wasn't as good tonight. Oh, her voice cracked during this number. She was better last time. I don't think we're meant to be comparing. I think you're meant to take a performance as that performance. I agree with you in that, you know, like, especially if it's, a, for example, like Wicked, like if it's a long running show and different people play certain roles and like, of course, every single person is different and everyone is going to bring something special to the show. But then it's like, oh, well, they didn't hit that note like so-and-so did or this one did. And it's like, sometimes that's not always the point. Yeah. You know, that's not what it's for. That's, you know, it's, we're, it's yeah, we're just there as creators and perform. Everyone just, we're there to tell a story and give, you know, entertain and, educate and all that kind of good stuff and so when it gets down to that it's like well then why are you really going to see it you know because that validation that ownership yeah. that, that that feeling that it gives them and i think there's cheaper hobbies yes you know to be honest there are cheaper hobbies out there like so i'm not kids out there to do this i promise i'm not judging you i find it fascinating i find it kind of weird because Like, I've seen the same show over and over again when I was an usher, and it was a production of South Pacific, but I was ushering. It wasn't a, I saw it the first time and I had to go, you know, see it 10 more times after that. I was literally helping my local theatre company. But it it puts the cast, I think, under a much higher scrutiny than they already are, because ticket prices puts you under scrutiny already, because we want our money's worth full stop, you know, but then... To see it over and over again, you're scrutinizing them based on the last performance and the performance before that. That's not fair. I had something to ask you that's somewhat related about, you know, making a show fresh and new every night. Because with the um, My Fair Lady that you did for Julie Andrews, and I mean, certainly when I saw South Pacific, there were seemed like there were things that were different in every performance from the ensemble. Do you um, work within a sort of structured improvisation sort of uh framework or how do how how do you get your dancers to keep things fresh and to make it a different show every night i i usually do kind of exactly what you're saying i do i mean there's definitely structure but then usually there's enough in there that it's like these this is where you have to get to but as long as they know the the you know who their character is and what they would do and everyone's safe i usually leave it open just enough so that they can have a little fun and do and mix things up, you know, every now and then on stage, just so that 
it keeps it fresh for them and it, it's, it keeps them thinking and on their toes and it keeps their castmates on their toes because someone's going to like not look at you tonight and look at you the next day or grab you into a dance one night. And I, and I, I personally feel that that is help. It's helpful to them. Like if I was, when I was a performer, I, that's why, I, I mean, I did cats for like five years total, but I think I did it. I lasted that long because it was different every night. Like there's, there was, you know, the ball was the ball, but then like all of the rest of the show was a lot of us improving and kind of crawling where you want, as long as you knew you were safe. So, and I appreciated that. I appreciated kind of getting to be creative and like not do what I want, but just like do my part to, to make it fun and fresh. And so I, I think it helps for sure. That's a warmth. I think mm-hmm. I, I can relate it to wicked because I love the music in that show but when i saw it i didn't feel a warmth because it felt very structured and very set in stone it didn't feel like there was any loose movement or any sort of i didn't feel like the cast were breaking out of the shells of what they were told to do basically which is probably a horrible thing to say about this super talented cast that were amazing and it may just be my problem because I apparently am the only person that got this vibe from it, but I I didn't feel that looseness or that warmth that, that you would get from that, from being able to go from A to B in character with a bit of improv, a, you know, a, a natural flow from what is set dance moves because, yeah, I don't know, it's just me, but compare that to, you know, something like Book of Mormon where they were... It's a comedy, I guess. So it's, you know, and there wasn't as much dancing in it, obviously, but it's, it, it didn't feel as regimented, if you will, that, that word again. Mm-hmm. Theatre shouldn't be regimental. Well, SpongeBob certainly felt um, free and loose. I mean, aside from the tap dance number. <laughs> <laughs> well, see, that's actually, that's a, that's a good example of kind of like structure and not structure because there were some numbers that absolutely had to be like letter perfect, you know, like, like the tap, they had to be like really clean. And like, especially the, the glow in the dark number, simple sponge, like that had to be meticulous because they were hitting all those shapes in the dark and they, you know, they don't, you don't want someone to step over someone or on someone or hit someone. So that, that was actually like very specific in a way that was, you know, just drilled and drilled and drilled. But that, but then there are other moments in that show where it was absolutely a free for all, like the opening and like, that was a, you know, there was structure, but it was like, that was a, you know, it was just organized chaos, but in the best way, you know, and and, it, and so it feels warm and inviting and they got to do whatever they want and have fun and be themselves. And so it, that, that was, a, that show is actually a perfect example of kind of like when and when and where to be. I think that's it. it Tina really helped like sculpt the whole show that way to, so that it was very precise when it needed to be for comedy because that has to be specific but then also you know very loose when it had to be loose so that that's a that's a good one spongebob is so cool (laughs) that's another one you need to bring to australia yes oh my god please i would love that isn't it like set off the coast of australia yeah yeah bring spongebob to australia already for crying out loud goodness me going back to yeah and the foley have you seen yeah the, the just all the noise in that opening number so funny 
I haven't seen it yet because I want to. That's the type of show I would want to see live. Yeah, yeah. So I haven't yet watched it. Like, if we do it on this show, I'm going to have to watch it, obviously. Sometimes, like, there'll be a, a musical that I'll it will come out and I'll hear the album. The, but then that's it. I won't look at any footage or anything like that beyond maybe the Tony Awards performance because I want to see it live. Um, Hairspray was very much like that, but before we got it on stage in Australia, we got the movie. So don't do that with SpongeBob, please. <laughs> Anyways, you have been an absolute amazing guest. Thank you for joining us and laughing at all my jokes because that always makes me feel very validated. I never know with guests like what someone's sense of humor is. Oh. <laughs> well, maybe from some other shows you might have a an idea <laughs> yeah um that's why i apologize beforehand just in case just in case it's not that i plan on saying anything shitty it's just i just happen to sometimes because foot and mouth disease is a thing uh but anyways where can people find you on the social medias uh at c g a t t e l l i anywhere really nothing too fancy nothing too fancy and i'm guessing you're not posting videos of yourself doing little performances to get a job <laughs> No, although I could, I, I'm so people would say I don't need to, but no. anyway. Oh, God, we'll no. See. After this career, Jesus Christ. And, and it's still like you're in your prime and the future. Goodness gracious me. Uh, so don't forget little old us. No way. It's such a pleasure meeting you guys. Oh, my God. This was a blast. Thanks, yeah, Chris. Awesome. Anytime you want to join us again, we'd love to have that. You are our first choreographer. We've, look, we've had a Muppets director on this show before we got a Broadway choreographer. <laughs> what? Yeah, you guys have great questions. Oh, thank you. Oh, thank you very much. It's actually Matt's first episode. Yeah. Oh, wow. That's it from us. You take care and we shall see you next time. Who wrote? Awesome. You guys are great. That's fantastic. Like Quicksand!